welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. We are continuing on our series. Um, hands up, by the way, just who was involved in the Great Scottish Run today. Nothing to do with sermon. Just like to know my audience. Come on, hands up. Like, like the. the, the that's a fair representation. I too was on it, so I just want to share that because I'm, I'm managing my energies. And it would be ironic if my sermon lasted 46 minutes, um, but um, let's hope it doesn't. Anyway, just saying, just saying, um, we come to this, uh, the, the Table of Nations chapter and the Tower of, of Babel, which it kind of probably quite well-known in some way uh, stories, though I suspect sometimes they, they might not always uh, be so familiar in terms of their meaning. But I felt strangely encouraged to be in this strange story, particularly at the, the time in history we are in right now, that, that speak of nations and, and that having its place in the Bible as we find ourselves in an incredibly worrying time in, in world history. The famous uh, pastor, theologian John Stott, he always advised uh, uh, people to read with their Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other as a, as a way to say, like, like, we, we need to be able to make sense of this. These things are, are, are to be interpreting each other. And um, never, I think, has it been a harder time in history, well, that's not entirely true. There's been many difficult times in history where it's been a poignancy to hold the Bible and hold our newspaper and go like, I wonder what's going on. I wonder what's going on in uh, the heart of God uh, at this time. And it's, it's good to, to bring such concerns into the house of God. It's good not to feel you have to come into church and, and everything that we see in our world and our, our experience gets left at the door. It is good to be able to come in and just uh, bring these things into the house of God to inquire of him, to see what God would say to us uh, as a community in this particular moment uh, that we're in. But, but there, there is a bit of a, a puzzle in some ways we're reading these two chapters, which I think is helpful to read the um, together um, about what this all means and what it means for us today, what it meant for maybe the first audience or who would have received these, um, these texts. Um, there's at least two sort of puzzling aspects that are worth highlighting between the two chapters. One is the chronology is not exactly linear. So in 10, if you notice, we have the dispersal and we've got loads of languages uh, and then in 11, we have, it starts with one language. And so we're a bit like, well, is it one? Is it many? And the, the, the chronology doesn't line up. T- 10 kind of seems to precede, and 11 is a bit like, you know, some years earlier, is that sort of a vibe. Um, so there's a bit of a confusion on that front. But also the emphasis, one, one sounds 
the, the list in, in Genesis 10, it could be read as this is the, the, the blessing of go be fruitful and multiply, you know, as God kind of oversees the scattering of languages and people in this table of nations. But then in 11, that's not a blessing. It, it's, it's seen as a, a curse. It's seen as God intervening to act to, and it, the scattering is actually seen as an act of his judgment. And so maybe not that obvious, but when you start to read them together, we realize the Hebrew mind draws us into a way where we, we look at themes, we look at repetition with variation, we, we read a story, then we go back and read another story, we see how words connect, and we think, we don't just read it in a linear fashion to try and make sense of what on earth is God saying in this, uh, through these, this passage of his revealed word. And so we need to, without being experts in Hebrew, just at least notice the way uh, there's some seemingly uh, surface incongruencies between the two things, two chapters. So we, at some level, if we're trying to wrestle with this, these big themes and, and also ground it into, well, what's God saying to us here? Um, what does this all mean? We need to figure out what actually was the problem or the sin of the, the tower builders that we have in, the, in chapter 11. That seems to be one of the most crucial things. If we could figure out what that is, then we might be able to think as, as followers of Jesus today, well, well, what do we do with this? How do we uh, put this into practice in, in our lives today? Um, so if we go back to Genesis 10 for a few moments, um, we have quite an original uh, Hebrew innovation in this uh, table of nations, which traces the lines of Noah's three sons after the flood. So we have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I got through some of their lines of descent. Now, modern standards may want to push back and look at some of the precision. Commentators will start to map out how the lines start to land in specific areas throughout the ancient world at that time. Now, it's kind of moving from this sort of universal, um, mysterious picture of Genesis to landing uh, the story of the Bible in the real world. And commentators will, will actually say, like, it will be different to modern standards, but many commentators will look back and pat them on the back and say, this is actually quite an innovative uh, piece of literature that started to try and map out uh, the world. And it does it in a, in a theological way through these uh, three lines. And there's some important theological implications of Genesis 10 with this idea of the table of nations, the lines of descent of the people multiplying in the earth. From Genesis 10, first of all, it could be said from Genesis 10 that there's the ethnic diversity and the diversity in language is evidence, as they already alluded to, to God's blessing. That it's not a, a, a bad thing. It's a, actually a sign of blessing. A lot of commentators will point out it's actually pretty significant that in the Bible that there, there is a pre-Genesis 12 line. So before the calling of Abraham and the calling of a specific nation, Israel, the line goes back to this universal humanity. And this is actually a really important thing, particularly as Christians, as we trace the, the line of Christ, it actually goes all the way back before Abraham to all people. And so there's just this clue that this was never meant to be from conception, some little thing for one tiny exclusive family. There's just a clue from its design that actually God's heart was 
for the nations and celebrates the diversity of the languages. But perhaps the most obvious and main thing that this table of nations and why I think it stands out to me is actually saying in this moment is that God is depicted as sovereign over the nations and providentially caring for the nations. And in a sort of show, don't tell type of way, he's, that's what the author is kind of showing through this lines of descent and all these people is just saying, no, no, in all of these nations and all of these languages, the hand of God is still upon them, is sovereignly over them, and in, in many ways is caring for them. Just pause and hold that moment, uh, hold that thought for a moment. Because what are some of the alternatives? God's dead, doesn't, it doesn't exist, and so we in sort of nihilism. Or it doesn't exist anymore in light of the Enlightenment and what we now know. That idea of God is just, that's just so many centuries ago. Or God started this world but is detached. Is, fate is just going to work itself out and he's kind of like started it but he's not actually involved in our world in the things that are going on. And yet through this innovative description of the table of nations we have a writer who's trying to say, no, 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 this God is a sovereign God and his hand is over the nations. And this is a, an incredible picture here of the Yahweh God by tracing these three lines of descent. And there's probably many layers that you, that you could dig into if you wanted to go into it, but I, I think that is one of the main things that Genesis 10 is trying to just put before um, us. So we move to, to Genesis 11 to the story of the Tower of um, Babel or Babylon. We can come to that in a moment. But firstly, what was this, this problem that the Tower Builders uh, got nailed for? The, the, what was, what was the, the, the essential nature of what they were doing? Um, so let's start with what it probably was not or definitely was not in some cases. One, uh, I think we can say that, and I've heard it put like this, and I think I might have been taught it like this a bit, but the idea that God was a, a, a technophobe of some description. He, he didn't like the technology, he felt threatened by the technology, and uh, we have to kind of watch about what we create in technology. And I, I, I don't think what the problem was, I don't think God was a technophobe or, or against innovation about these city builders, these tower builders, uh, I, I don't think that's what was uh, kind of making God want to come in, in judgment against them. I also don't think it was basic, you know, an antagonism towards civic working together for the common good. God, I don't think he just felt insecure and thought they're doing a, a wee civic thing and this might rival my thing and what if their thing's better than my... I, I don't think it was insecurity. And I don't think it was God against civic good and people coming together to work for the good, for the common good. And I also, as I've said, for reasons from chapter 10 and other reasons you'd point, obviously in the Bible, that diversity was not the problem. It wasn't like God had one language, one ethnic nation, and that's, that's what made everything happy. That, that, that is not what we find in Genesis 10 or throughout the scriptures. 
But it certainly seems that from verse 4, and it's kind of this now famous lines about, come, let us build ourselves a city. There's a strong indication that the problem that we've been wrestling with from from the beginning of uh, Genesis 3, this problem of hubris or, or pride, people doing what's right in their own eyes, was again another expression going viral and was being expressed in this uh, building of the tower and in this beginning of the city. And so pride or hubris is, is starting to define the problem. But the Genesis narrative gets even more specific than just generally the theme of pride. And there's a few clues that point to some of the specificity of that in the, in the probably slightly more, well, a lot more obvious if we're reading it in Hebrew. Um, we'll probably notice it a lot more quickly. But start first of all with um, the language. One thing about the language. When it talks about uh, the bricks, come let us get bricks and build. One of the things straight away that would ping off in people's mind. Now there's, in the Hebrew there's um, rhythm and rhyme to it that would draw the attention to all the more. But if I ask you the question, I, I suspect many of you would get it quite quickly. The, the bricks quite quickly remind you of other parts that we go to in the scriptures, not least Exodus, and this whole concept of slavery. The people, remember when they were told to make bricks and it was all about their output when they were in slavery to their Egyptian lords. And so the bricks would, in people's mind, would go like, oh, right, slavery. And and their, their minds would be attuned to that. But also in the language, hence the the Babel, the Babylon, the Babylonia thing, we start to realize it it could be just as easily translated the Tower of Babylon, the Tower of Babel. And and the place Shinar was the beginning of this place called Babylonia, or this area of Babylonia, which would, of course, become a dominant empire and a, a theme that becomes almost a typology that gets repeated throughout the scriptures. And so we start to find that actually it's not just pride in general, but it's the sort of exploitative pride of empire. We had people building a tower in isolation for themselves to draw them so that they could be in control and they would have the power. And it's a a movement of isolation and obviously rebellion against God as he had designed his world to be, one of equity and justice and goodness and obedience to him. Um, other words like the word for come, in the word for uh, when it says in verse three of chapter eleven, "Come, let us make bricks." The word um, for come is hava, and in Exodus one ten, so it's not a word that's used very often in the Old Testament. The Pharaoh says in Exodus uh, chapter one ten, "Come, hava, let us deal shrewdly with them." And so, clues left, right, and centre that sometimes can miss that the the problem of these tower builders was not their ambition per se, but it was their pride of this exploitative empire that would become the Babylon, which gets repeated in the Bible. And Babylon was not a place that signified in the scriptures of people seeking uh, the common good. This is a place of power, money, centralized oppression, and this became something of an instrument of God's judgment. And importantly, we find in this narrative that God doesn't just let that slide. God does not just let evil slide. Um, God does not let sin slide. And it's 
it's almost a, a satirical picture here when we get, it's almost like when God comes down, it's like the kids have been quiet for a while and he comes down to see what they've done and all the noises about. And God comes down into this and sees that they're building their, their, their wee tower that they're trying to do their thing and he comes down and he comes down to judge when he sees what they're up to. And in some ways, there's both a grace and a blessing in the, in the scattering, um, which allows communication, though communication is more difficult. There's a restriction to the evil and the, the domination and the rebellion. God acts in judgment to restrict and to restrain the evil of the rebellion from him. Now, if you just, again, extrapolate and, or jump a thousand years many more than a thousand years, from thinking of empire then and thinking empire now. In some ways, well, maybe it's not more blatant then than it is now, but there's so many examples, I think, that are all too scary and to think of expressions of domination, of empire, that the Bible speaks clearly uh, against that God will not just let it slide, that God doesn't just let evil slide. And I, I don't know what your list would be, but I, I've been just uh, reflecting on a range of ones. As the, the story of the young girl who uh, committed suicide through seeing various things on Instagram and the case of um, Meta, Facebook and and Pinterest who are in the courts. And what, I, I'm, I don't know the case in the ins and outs. I'm just curious. The point made by the, the father, the grieving father, was he was concerned that they were monetizing the misery of young people through their algorithms, through their technology, through their control. It was exploitative. And the... Um, I understand that there was a case made, and a ruling that, that was, there was a causal link um, made between her death and what she's seen. And the difficulty that I've heard in that story is of these organizations. I'm not saying they're, but I, they're, they're structures that actually hold power, hold money, and to get the information from. And I'm just curious, are, are there, is there present evils uh, among even those um, things. Isolation and domination, we see it uh, in the cases of, of racial injustice. We also see the whole example of empire in, it doesn't have to be so grand. We see Christian churches, organizations, having coercive, controlling practices, leaders, behaviors that go unchecked. And, our minds should be wary of that and that God does not just let this slide. God doesn't just let it slide that when somebody, for, for some greater end, he will deal and he will judge with a, a culture, with a leader, with a, an organization that becomes uh, exploitative and domineering um, in its character. And the Christian church has been far from exempt from that um, in recent history and over um, the centuries. And of course, th there is a case 
through the arm of maybe of, of empire, of technology, goes not technical, but when technology often finds its way into the hands of the powerful, of the ones who hold all the money, then we see how things collude. The exploitative domination, this tower building, their hubris and pride that would then be defined by this term Babylon was what God scattered and came down to quash. And at root cause is their pride and their rebellion from, from God. Another expression of the human propensity when it turns from God and makes itself God, what happens? So humans should be warned then from Genesis 1 to 11. And it sets up the story, something like God was radiating with his goodness in the Edenic glory, but stubborn humanity persists and God judges causing exile from God's intimate presence. We see a proliferation of evil. And we, we should be warned that God deals with that. God deals with the wrong things. But humanity can also be encouraged because God's grace persists. And from now on, we will see in the, the narrative of Genesis, God chooses to consistently work with humanity. But from now onwards, he chooses to work through a specific people a specific family that he will call. And it's true, his hand is still on the world. He is sovereign. His hand is on the world. But it's also true that his hand is going to be particularly upon a people who will carry the promise in a plan to restore and heal. And there's a tension here in Genesis 10, 11 of the sovereign providence of God as well as his election and attention to a particular people. That God is presently holding our world and yet wants to work in a particular way through a specific people. His hand is on both, if we can hold that in our hearts and minds. And his, his, his care is on both. But he has chosen to work through a specific way to steward the promise. And we need to hold and identify that this uh, tension. The pattern will be broken, of course. Jesus completes this story by displaying a victory in the, that catches people out. It's not by power, not by might, but by the Spirit of God that is unleashed through the cross of Christ. That this, this new movement will, will, will turn evil on its head. And in the perfect life of Jesus, we have one who is the perfect vehicle to hold the promise. And so the curse of sin and death will be broken and self-giving love will become the foundation of the new thing God will do. But let me just make two observations with how God's people responded in the Old Testament and New Testament to help us to try and imagine what we might do with that here, like today, like what God might be saying to, to us in this moment of world history where there's turmoil there's threat. Do you know, I, I was thinking about this. It, this might seem a bit morbid, and, but I'll go there anyway. But there's, I, when, I, when I stood up the week I announced that, that I didn't think we'd be meeting for some time because of COVID, I was like, part of my brain just didn't believe really the words I was saying. I thought it'd be a few weeks and we'll be back together. And then it was like, however long, we'll back together. And I, that surreal moment of just saying to everybody, and, and I'm not being predictive here at all, but the, on the whole nuclear war thing, I suddenly, God, I, I hope I never standing up here for a week saying, 
there has been a, we know there's been a nuclear incident or so. There, there is a, a sense of this moment that we are in that we, we need to not stick our head in the sand and say, oh, I'll be fine. We, we, there, there's a, 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 a seriousness to this uh, moment that we find ourselves in. So, but two observations about how people in Old Testament and New Testament respond. First of all, these, to- these uh, stories in Genesis 10 11 reveal to us that in times of turmoil, they witness to encourage us to seek a God who is sovereign over the world and who wants to specifically work through a specific people. They encourage us to look to a God whose hand is over the world and yet wants to work through a specific people. But they also reveal a God who stands against the prideful rebellion of exploitative systems that become this repetitive thing called empire, called Babylon. He stands against pride in this world, and he also stands against it in his people when he sees it. And so one is we look, the response is the point is to seeking this sovereign God who wants to work through us, and also realize that this God stands against injustice, and therefore so must me. And then we see the same pattern in the New Testament church. If you think, go to Acts 4. I read it this week and it just seemed obvious. It was a spirit-filled moment when Peter and John were rescued from prison and they come back and they, they, the believers pray together and they, they raise their voices in, in, in great heart and say, and they pray to God, and saying, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's not that they didn't, Jesus was king of their heart. I'm sure they welcomed him into their life, but they, they came together and their vision was of the sovereign God who holds the nations. And they sought him and the spirit came and filled them and led them out to act in small and beautiful ways in their world that started to turn the world upside down. But it was this expansive vision of who the one true living God was that their prayers went to. So they did the same thing. They sought the sovereign Lord and allowed his spirit to work through them. But they also moved in the opposite direction, as we know in Acts, of the tower builders. An act that becomes a great celebration is unity and diversity. And we see the equalizing of the spirit and we see the reverse of the Tower of Babel when the, the tongues of fire land on everybody in his church. It's not about one person, one ministry. It becomes the redistribution of, of God's spirit, not just in special people, but in everybody gathered here. And their job as Ephesians is to say is to, in Christ, to the victory of Christ and his cross, is to be tearing down the walls of hostility and drawing people back home to God. That was what they were called to do. And so, on the one hand, it's really simple as we, we, we listen to this. I think God is saying to us that we are to become seekers. Like, when trouble hits, and it is, when the world is out of seeming control in our human way, and it is, we are to seek him all the more intensely, not just down our tools and be like, oh, gee, I don't know what to do. Do you know what to do? That's not the Christian response here. The Christian response is to seek the sovereign Lord who wants to work in and through ordinary people like you and I, and to point to the one source of 
hope and truth and goodness, who is Christ. And we are to become seekers, but we are also, among many other things, to become reconcilers. We're tearing down the walls where we see hostility, whatever shape or form of it. As the tower builders try to isolate and make a name for themselves, Christians move in the complete opposite direction. I think God is encouraging us this afternoon to not switch off and just become commentary in the news, but is to say, bring this into the house of God and bring it into our mission and bring it into our prayers. Don't switch off from our faith as if it's irrelevant to everything we see. Our hope is in Jesus. And we come back to the foundation and source of that. And as a prayer or as a meditation to finish, just listen to the gaze to help use these words to help gaze on the person of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. It's just about the expression of the kingdom. It's just meant to fill our hearts and imagination to remind us what we're about as people who follow Jesus. And Philippians uh, 2 says this, in your relationships one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. We hear that call, your spirit, to lift up our hearts to you. Help us not to switch off. Spirit, come upon us again. And in these days, upon your church, Lord, help us to play our part in a much bigger and complicated story. But Lord, your hand over all but working through us. Come, Spirit of God. Speak. We're here for you.